Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. As we are in our second week of walking through Revelation 1 through 3. As you're turning there, let me give you a couple of just pastoral encouragements by way of introduction this morning. The first is this, a couple of weeks ago, we ended our series through the book of Philippians, and we talked about the idea of partnership, that partnership is what it means to be a member of a church, and partnership is giving and receiving. I pled with you to be giving financially, sacrificially, and consistently to the work of the church, and over the last two weeks, we have seen a rather dramatic increase in our giving, and I say that for two reasons. To first of all, say praise the Lord, uh, that God is good. Uh, I say that to encourage you. I'm so thankful that you're a people that is not just hearing the word, but are obeying the word. That is deeply encouraging to me, that you are obeying the word of God. And I'm just encouraged that our giving is always a revelation of our heart. So what that says to me is that God's stirring in your heart. So I just praise the Lord for that. I'm really encouraged by that. It's not about the money, it's about the heart. And so it's just encouraging me to know. So keep going, keep persevering, keep doing well in that regard. The next thing, I just want to praise the Lord. I I asked you last week uh, that we would join together over the next 70 days as we're walking through Revelation 1 through 3 to pray and fast together. Uh, I believe that God blesses corporate prayer and fasting. And we're fasting because we're longing for more. I sense a desire in your heart. It's certainly in my heart that we want everything that God has for us. So I encourage you to go online and sign up. Uh, I want you to know that we have multiple people signed up for every day over these 70 days. So you responded, I have to believe the Lord is going to bless that. It is not too late for you to continue to sign up. Just because people are signed up for a day, that doesn't mean we don't need more people. It's not, well, the day is done, I don't need any more. We would love 100 people fasting and praying on every day. Uh, I am writing a new prayer guide every week. So this morning there is a new one posted in response to this sermon for you to pray through this week. So thank you, praise the Lord. I have to believe God's going to bless 70 days of prayer and fasting. The last thing I want to say is this. I had the opportunity to go this week uh, with about 70 college students away on a retreat. I preached to them Friday night, twice Saturday, got back about 9.30 last night. They are still there, uh, and they are watching this morning, so I'm thankful that they're there. God is doing some fresh things in our college ministry, so be praying for them. I was deeply encouraged by my time there as well. All right? Those are just some pastoral encouragements. Now to Revelation chapter 2. I grew up with a deeply rooted fear of the Lord. This was instilled in my life in many different ways, mostly by my parents. My father had a unique way of instilling fear of the Lord into me. But I I would say, most of all, it was probably due to, to my mother. My mother is the sweetest woman. She is a Mary. She loves Jesus and walks with the Lord. And she had a lot of little things that she would say to us over and over. If you were to ask my brothers, the one thing that my mom always said, it was this. Every time we leave the house, she would say, be sweet, have fun, and do everything like you're doing it for Jesus. Over and over, every time we left the house, she would say that. She also had a favorite verse that she would quote very frequently. As a kid, I wasn't even sure this was in the Bible. It was just something that she said over and over. It was very simply this, beware, your sins will find you out. What she was saying is this, mama may not see it, but Jesus sees it. And what I learned because of my mom's relationship with Jesus, oftentimes the stuff that Jesus saw and mama didn't see, Jesus would tell mama. And somehow she would see the things that was impossible for her to see. 
that it was true that even if mom didn't see it, Jesus was seeing it. And just most like everything else in my life, the older I get, the more I actually appreciate that reminder, which is from Numbers 32. It is true that God sees what no one else sees, that you cannot hide from God. You can fool others, but you cannot fool him. This idea has been reaffirmed in my life as a pastor over and over over the last few years. Just the realization that what you see is not always reality. That outward appearance doesn't always tell the whole story. That in many cases, a person's outward activity could actually be hiding a deeper inward reality. The truth is, we don't know what we're seeing. That there is a God who sees beyond the outward appearance and he sees the inward reality. And what's true of people is also true of the church. There are churches who have a healthy, outward, visible appearance. But inwardly, things are not as they appear. And there may be things that the church does not even see, that the Lord sees, that a church is blind to. But the truth is, we have a God that is not fooled by the outward appearance of the church. He sees what is really in the heart of the church. This is exactly what the Lord was revealing to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. This was the most influential church in the most influential city. This is a church founded by the Apostle Paul, a place where Paul spent over three years, most likely more time there than in any other church. It was a church that saw an incredible spiritual awakening as the gospel was presented and lives were changed and an incredible model church was created. It is a church that was ministered to by the who's who of the early church. Priscilla and Aquila ministered there. Apollos ministered there. Timothy ministered there. Even John, who was writing the book of Revelation, ministered there. This church outwardly was the picture of a healthy church. If you're looking for a church, you're going to join the church at Ephesus. But yet in the midst of all of the healthy, outward, visible actions, Jesus saw something deeper. And Jesus exposed in them what no one else could have seen, only Jesus could see. It begins in verse 1 with a vision of Jesus. Every one of these letters begins with a vision of Jesus. Because as we saw last week, you cannot have a right vision of the church without a right vision of Jesus Christ. Jesus is more glorious than we think and the church is more important than we think. So he begins by saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him, Christ, who holds the seven stars in his hands and who walks among the seven lampstands. Right here, before they get into the meat of the letter, there's a picture painted of the authority and the presence of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has authority over the church. This is his church. He has the right to speak into this church because he has authority over it. He is present among the church. He is intimately concerned with them and involved in them. Remember the vision of Jesus among the churches. And so it's reiterated to them that this is coming from the one who has authority, who knows all, who sees all, and who is intimately concerned and involved in the life of your church. And then in verse 2, Jesus then begins to tell them about how he sees their outward actions. He gives, in verses 2 and 3, nine positive outward actions. He then comes back in verse 6 and gives another one as well. He's just affirming over and over, I know that you do this, I know that you do this, I know that you do this. And you get a picture from this, just what a faithful church this actually was. 
I think you could take all of these outward actions and put them into three primary categories. The first one is this. This was a hard-working church, a hard-working church. He says, I know your works. Now, the church in Ephesus understood because it was written to them in the letter that Paul sent to them before this happened in Ephesians chapter 2 that they were saved not by good works, but they were saved for good works. For by grace you have been saved, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. But you are the workmanship of Christ created in him for good works. The church at Ephesus knew they had been saved to work. And so, as saved people, they begin to work. But Jesus gives us a picture of their work by the next word. He says, and I see your toil. That is a word that means to work to the point of exhaustion. Jesus wants us to get a picture that this is not simply a working church. This is a toiling and a laboring church. That they are going above and beyond. They're not simply working when it's comfortable. They're working in every and all circumstances, toiling until the point of exhaustion. This is a hard-working church. They are not slothful. They are not lazy. They are active and busy and known for the fact that no matter what the pressure is around them, they are going to keep working and keep serving. They're a hard-working church. Not only that, they're a persevering church would be the second category that would be affirming their outward actions. He says this. He says, I know that you are enduring patiently in verse 3, which is interesting because it reaffirms what he said in verse 2. I know your patient endurance. And then again, he says, you are enduring patiently. Now we have to remember, like all of the churches in this time, this was a church encountering fierce opposition. You see it in Acts 19 when the church was planted there and there was a massive riot in the city because the gospel was proclaimed and people believed it. This was a city known for its idolatry and its demonic activity. It was known for its sexual immorality and its magic. And if you were interested in those type of things, going deeper into immorality, sexual immorality, idolatry, magic, then you went to Ephesus. This was the center of those type of things. If you were looking to walk in those things, this is where you went. The problem was this, is that the gospel opposes every one of those things. So as the gospel rises and people get delivered and they're saved out of that, it diminishes the very thing the city is known for. And so those who are proud about their city and love their city and want it to stand for those things and realize that people are visiting the city for that hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's not only physical persecution, there's all kind of social persecution. People are losing their jobs, they're being excluded and kicked out of their families. These are people enduring fierce opposition, like nothing we have ever encountered in this life. But what it says is this, is that no matter how much the opposition increases, no matter how much the persecution increases, they are patiently enduring. They're not getting frustrated, they're not getting anxious, they're just enduring the persecution. But look at the other words it says in verse 3. You're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my namesake. You're not being pushed down, but you're bearing up. It's almost as if the more pressure that comes on you, the more you bear up under the pressure. It says, and you have not grown weary. Now this is amazing to me. All of us have encountered some type of difficulty in our lives and suffering and maybe even a bit of persecution. And we all know what it's like after weeks or months or even years of bearing up under that, how easy it is to just get tired of fighting, 
tired of enduring. But Jesus says, I know you. And I know that you're patiently enduring conflict. I know that you're bearing up under the pressure. And I know that you're still active and working, even though this has been years of persecution, you are not even growing weary in all the good things you are doing. We're getting a picture of a really healthy church. They're hardworking, they're persevering, and they are sound in doctrine. They're sound in doctrine. Look what it says at the end of verse 2. You cannot bear with those who are evil. They're surrounded by evil, but they're not tolerating the evil. The evil comes into the church, they deal with it. But not only that, they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. We talked about this a lot in the book of Philippians. All throughout the early church, there's people coming in, declaring their authority in Jesus Christ, teaching false doctrine. This is a church that can sniff out false doctrine. They see it. They know who's in a false prophet, and they test them and they find them to be false. So they not only see false doctrine, they point out false doctrine, they are deeply rooted in sound doctrine. I mean, this is the group that got Ephesians 1 through 3. We don't have much richer theological text than Ephesians 1 through 3. Chapter 1, 3 through 14 is one of the richest theological texts we have written to the church in Ephesus. They understood sound doctrine. It even tells us, if you look at verse 6, he comes back and it says, Yet this you have, you have hated the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There was a group of false prophets, and we'll talk about those in the coming weeks, and they've acknowledged them and stood up against them. This is a church standing for the truth of the gospel. They believe it, and they call out those who are not preaching it faithfully. Listen to me, this is not a lazy, moderate, watered-down social gospel church. This is a church standing for the gospel in the midst of persecution. They're advancing the message of the gospel and striving together. They are serving to the point of exhaustion. They have every single mark of a healthy church. They love the gospel. They preach the gospel. They sing the gospel. They call out heretics. And they're working to the point of not being able to work any longer and not growing weary. Now, that, that's a good church, isn't it? But It says there is, in the midst of all of that, one thing the Lord has against them. He says, listen, I know your visible outward actions. I see them and they're good. All of those things are right and good, but there's just one thing I have against you. It's found in verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That word abandon means to forsake, to leave, to desert something. It is a word that Paul uses for divorce. You have left something. You have walked away from something. You have consciously walked away from the love you have for me. Now listen, I want to be honest with you. My, my, my responsibility is not only to preach the text, but to think through the text. And so as I'm looking at this... I'm, I'm thinking about it, I'm trying to process it, and I'm trying to think even what you're thinking, and what I'm thinking when I read this is, what in the world does Jesus mean by love? I mean, look at everything this church is doing for them. They're standing for the gospel, they're advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They know the truth, they love the truth, they're working hard. Isn't loving Jesus keeping his commandments? I mean, isn't this about devotion and commitment and, and faithfulness? They're doing all of these things, and yet Jesus 
knowing their hard work, knowing their sound doctrine, knowing their perseverance, says to them, yeah, 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 but you don't love me. I feel like I can hear this playing out in a marriage. I feel like I can hear one person saying to their spouse, honey, I just, I just don't feel like you love me. I, I don't know how to explain it. I just don't feel like you love me. To which the other person responds, what do you mean you don't feel like I love you? Everything I do, I do because I love you. I go to work because I love you. I come home from work because I love you. I come home from work and work because I love you. I'm providing because I love you. I've been faithful to you because I love you. I don't understand how in the world you can say that I don't love you. I just have to believe that the church at Ephesus is going, whoa, hold on, Jesus. You just affirmed our perseverance, our hard work, our faithfulness to the doctrine. What do you mean we don't love you? Well, when Jesus says that they have lost their love, he must mean more than actions because they're an active church. He must mean more than devotion because they are a devoted church. He must mean more than obedience because they're an obedient church. He must mean more than commitment because they are a committed church. He must even mean more than doctrine and endurance because they are sound in doctrine and enduring in persecution. So my question is, what in the world is Jesus looking for? What is it that they don't have? The answer is this. What Jesus wants is their affections. He wants their affections. No one knows it because they're so busy and they're so active, but they've lost their joy. They've lost their passion. They've lost the emotion for Jesus Christ. This is not simply about duty. This is about treasuring Jesus and enjoying Jesus and delighting in Jesus. Now listen, love does work. Love is active. Love dies to self and love sacrifices and love suffers and love lays down its life. But God is not looking for simply action. He's looking for affection. He doesn't just want your duty. He wants your delight. He wants you to love him with your heart. That the only thing possibly that could have been missing is that what Jesus saw inside of their heart is they had lost their passion, their joy, their longing, their desire, their affection for Jesus Christ. Your affections, how you feel about Jesus matters to him. And I would say it matters to you as well. You know, imagine if I come home from work tomorrow and I walk into the door and I have brought Andrea a huge bouquet of flowers and I have gotten her a nice card and written nice things in it and I walk in and I assure you she would be surprised. And I would come in and I would give her these flowers and she would say, well, my goodness, thank you, thank you so much. And I would say, well, sure, it's my duty. Excuse me? Yeah, you, you remember, right, when we were going through marriage counseling, the guy said, listen, you got to make sure you're doing some stuff. And so I just, I haven't done it in a while, and so I'm just, I'm doing it. And I was reading a book recently about marriage, and it said I need to be doing things like this. And so, I mean, it's not, I'm just doing it. So here you go. Does that matter? Just imagine I'm in bed. This is not hard to imagine. I'm tired. I'm ready to go to sleep. One of the kids comes down and says, Dad, would you come up and tuck me in or read me a book? And I say, fine, okay. I go up and I tuck them in, I, I read them a book, and they say, Dad, well, thank you for that. And I say, yes, it's my moral obligation. 
Like, I don't want you to go to church and say you have a deadbeat dad. And so it is my duty to get up and to sacrifice myself and to read you a book. Did I want to read you a book? Absolutely not. (laughs) But it is my duty to bring your mom flowers and to read you a book. Does that matter? Yeah, it matters. Like Andrea is not encouraged by my duty. She's encouraged by my delight. I, I didn't bring you flowers because I had to. I bring you flowers because I was thinking about you and I love you. I go and get out of bed and read you a book. Why? Not because I have to, but because I love you and I want you to know that I love you. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he's not saying, if you keep my commandments, that means you love me. What he's saying is, if you love me and desire me and have affections for me, you are going to keep my commandments. That your heart will be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, it is my delight to do your will. I delight in the law of the Lord. Why? Because I love you. I think about Genesis 29, 20, when it says that Jacob labored labored seven years for Rachel. And it says that it seemed like only a few days because of the love he had for her. His duty was not duty, it was delight. He gladly worked for seven years. Why? Because he loved the one he was working for. His duty came out of delight. This is what he's saying. He's saying these affections matter to the Lord. Let me me say it this way. God wants you to love him the way that he loves you. God has pursued you. He has purchased you. He gushes over you. Read Zephaniah 3. He's singing over you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He dances over you. And then he gives his life for you and needs to think of a name to call you. And he doesn't just call you his people. He doesn't just call you his children. Listen, he calls you his bride. Why? Because he's passionately in love with you that he is bringing you into a passionate love affair with him. And he wants you to move past master-servant relationship and he wants you to move past father-son relationship. He wants you to move past even being friends with him into an intimate, loving relationship with him. And if it makes you uncomfortable to think about a passionate love affair with the Lord, it is only because you do not understand the way he loves you. Because that is clear throughout scripture. He is passionately in love with you. He feels for you. He longs for you. He rejoices over you. Those affections matter. Remember the whole goal of these letters is that the church might be ablaze with the glory of Christ. The point of the letter of Ephesus is this. He wants us to be ablaze with the love of Christ. That the love that we have for him, the love that we have for each other, reflects the love that he has for us. We are captured by him. We delight in him. We rejoice in him. We long for him. And we are active and persevering and sound in our doctrine because we have deep affection for Jesus Christ. And here, it is here that we find the lesson from the church at Ephesus. The lesson that the Lord wants to put deep inside of all of our heart, knowing that he sees everything past the outward actions, the lesson we must get is this. The visibility of your outward actions will never take the place of the void of inward affections. The visibility of your outward actions can never take the place of the void of inward affections. 
You can have all of the visible outward actions you want. That's great, and you should, but that does not take the place, nor will it ever take the place, if there is a void of inward affections. The only thing they were missing is affection for Jesus Christ. And there's a part of me, I have to tell you, there's a part of me that wants to say, Jesus, they got so many things right. But then I think about this. If the one thing you forget matters more than all the things you remembered, all the things you remembered don't matter that much. If the one thing you forgot matters more than everything you remembered, then everything you remembered doesn't matter that much. The very essence of our faith, the very foundation of the faith is to call to love God, to enjoy him, to long for him, to desire him, to have a passionate love relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what he is calling us into. I have done countless hours of marriage counseling just because I'm a pastor and people come to see me and very little of it I remember. I can't think back and remember most of it, but what happens often in that moment is that I'm sitting here and a couple are sitting there and after a few minutes, you realize that you're just an observer and they're going at it and you're just listening. And I don't know why it is that I remember one line from about 10 years ago. I think about it over and over and I can't recall to you any other line that I've ever heard from marriage counseling but this one, but I can't forget this one. I remember the couple, I could tell you their names and they were sitting there and they were really just going at each other and all of a sudden the husband stops and he says, I don't, I don't, I don't know what you want from me. Like, I don't get it. Like, what do, you, what do you want from me? She got quiet. The tears welled up in her eyes. With the softest voice, she said this. I just wish that sometimes when we watch TV, you would just reach over and grab my hand. You know what she wanted? She wanted affection. I know you're working hard for me. That's great. I, I know that you're providing for our family. That's great. What I really want is I want your affection. I just, I just want to know that you feel love for me. Every one of us longs for that and the reason we long for that is God has put it in our heart to long for that. And God's heart longs for it too. He wants your affection. You say, well, what do I do if, what do you do if I've lost that? I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever really experienced that. What does the church in Ephesus do when they come to a place where they realize that they're doing so many good things, but what they don't have is just passion for Jesus? That's exactly what he tells him in verse five, look. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. There are three words, which is our response to this this morning. Remember, repent, and do. I'm gonna put them in three R's so it's easy for you to remember. Remember, repent, and respond. Remember, repent, and respond. You say, well, what do I do if I'm missing this passion for Jesus Christ, and I, I need it to be stirred up, this is what you do. You remember, you repent, and you respond. What does he mean when he says, remember therefore where you have fallen? What he means is this, is that somehow, listen, somehow, somewhere in the midst of your activity and your busyness and your love for theological truth and your work for the church, you have somehow, somewhere forgotten Jesus. 
this has no longer been about a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you have been active and busy and everyone around you would assume that you have a passionate love relationship with Jesus. But what God sees is there is very little fire and passion and love for Jesus inside your heart. What he's saying is remember that. Go back to that, that you have somehow forgotten about Jesus. I keep thinking this week about the old gospel song by Andre Crouch where he says, take me back, take me back, dear Lord, when I first believed. Take me back, take me back, oh Lord, when I first received you. I want to go back. I want to feel the fire of passion for Jesus Christ. Now, I feel like I can hear you saying, but Pastor, you don't understand I'm, I'm just not an emotional person. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I know it's a lie from the pit of hell because God is an emotional God and he's created you to be an emotional being. And if for somehow you do not feel the emotions, that is because of some bitterness or unforgiveness or something in your life in which you have chosen to squelch those emotions, but you are an emotional being created to be emotional by God. I also know that because most likely you're emotional about something, it's just not Jesus. You get fired up about something. You get excited about something. Vance Havner says that we have so discredited feelings and emotions from the church that amens in the church would be no more scarcer if you charged $100 for them. And the problem is we've just lost our first love. That you'd get more amens if you charged $100 for them. Well, why? Because we have said that feelings don't matter. Your feelings, your passion for Jesus matters. It's the only thing this church did not have. Remember Jesus in the midst of everything else. This is at its core a relationship, passionate, loving relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember. He then says, repent. Now, this is important because you know what that means? That means this is a sin. It's a sin. That he's saying, you have, in all of your busyness, left me. That you've forgotten about what it means to walk with me and to enjoy me and to light in me. And so I'm telling you to confess this, to turn from it, to hate it, to ask for deliverance. Here, here's, here's the thing. Something stole your affections. Something, something took away your passion and your love. Something stole it. Something else has it. What you have to do is discover what it is that's stolen your affections and then get them back to Jesus Christ. To say that the, the greatest passion should be reserved for that thing which is of greatest value, and that is Jesus Christ. There should be nothing I enjoy more than, than Jesus. That we repent, we turn from this and say, I don't want to live this way any longer. We remember, we repent, and we respond. He says, and do the works you did at first. In other words, you, you do something. So what do we do? Well, you start by cultivating the relationship with Jesus just like you would cultivate any relationship. You give him time. You pray. You know what you do? You fast. You say, Lord, I am hungrier for you and for fresh affections than I am hungry for food. And so I will say no to food for a day so that I might feast upon your word. And in feasting upon your word, I may, by, might be reminded of your goodness and your grace and your kindness, overwhelmed by all of those things. The truth is, if we are not experiencing 
that affection for Jesus Christ, most likely it is because we're feasting on something other than Jesus Christ. This is why I am calling us to fast and to pray that we might take a passage like this and say, Lord, I want this to be true of my life. I want this to be true of our church, that we want to be ablaze with the love of Christ. We want people to see us and walk into this service and see our affections for Christ. And when they meet with us, they know that we're not just church people, we're Jesus people, that we love Jesus. At the end of the day, take away everything else, but I gotta have Jesus, that Jesus is what I want. Jesus is what I love, ablaze with the love of Jesus, with fresh and passionate affections. So what's at stake? Well, look at what he says. He says, I have this against you in verse four, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? It simply means this, that the church that does not have fresh and holy and fiery affections for Jesus Christ will also not have the presence of Jesus Christ. That his presence is on those who love him. And as there's fresh affection for Jesus, there is a greater experience of the presence of Jesus. That if we come in here with red, hot, fiery hearts for Jesus on Sunday morning, what happens is we experience more of the presence and the Lord says, listen, if all you wanna do is be active and busy and theologically strong and solid, that's great. But just know you might experience a lot of things, but you will not experience my presence. I will remove my presence from the church if you do not have affection for me. I would say that matters because there is nothing we want more in this church than the experience of the presence of God. Let me just ask you this one question. How, how is your affection for Jesus? Like, where did it go? What, what stole it? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever come into a relationship with Jesus where what you wanted was not just heaven, you actually wanted Jesus? That you've come into a real relationship with Jesus where you have trusted Jesus and you have seen that Jesus is the only one that can save you and you're rejoicing because you have been saved by what Jesus did for you. Since some of you might've wanted heaven, but you never wanted Jesus. If you never wanted Jesus, you're not a believer. Some of you have never experienced this because you've never come to Jesus. I wanna plead with you to give your life to Jesus Christ. Some of you remember what it was like to have affection and passion for Jesus. Get it back, get it back. Pray that God would restore it. Come this morning, get on your knees and say, Lord, I don't wanna live like this anymore. I wanna have a red, hot, fiery, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. I wanna be more in love with Jesus than I am with anything else. Ask God for it. Ask him to restore it. Ask him to reveal what stole your affections. Plead with him for it. If you want it, go after it. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you're hungry, he'll feed you. If you're thirsty, he'll quench the thirst. Go after him and get it and experience what it's like to just fall in love with Jesus because he is better than anything else the world has to offer. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.